1 John chapter 1 through to 1 John chapter 2 verse 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, good morning again. Just about to start uh, a short series in 1 John. So uh, this, this month, uh, really, we're going to be working through uh, four key passages in this book. So if you have an opportunity, can I encourage you uh, maybe to spend some time and, and read the book? It's only, uh, it takes up four pages in your Bible. You can probably knock it over in about 20 minutes. Uh, and so I encourage you to do that just so you can get familiar. Uh, we're not dealing with the whole book in and of itself, uh, just four key passages. This morning we're talking about true fellowship. Now, relationships, I'm sure you'll agree, are absolutely essential. People need people. We need each other. We crave that connection. Even Anthea, who's going to cut us off from our Facebook accounts if we need some money to travel 3,000 kilometres from Darwin down to Adelaide, uh, we... our, our Really, our addiction with social media, as much as anything, reveals that about us, don't we? As our connections in society have got a little bit more tenuous, we've found other ways to explore that connectedness. We want to belong. We want to feel that others know us and they accept us. We want to feel like we are part of a community. But I think you'll probably agree that it is more and more difficult to feel a part of that community. Our experience of good community, where we say, yes, these people know me, yes, these people accept me, these people perhaps even love me, is getting rarer and rarer. Sometimes we come together and then things get in the way, don't they? And we find that even though we crave that connection, Things pull us apart, and we end up with relationships that are stunted, shallow. As I ask you this morning, 
Who really knows you? Who really knows you? For those of us who are married, we might say our spouse, our, our wife, our husband, maybe boyfriends, girlfriends, those kind of things. But who beyond that really knows you? Who would you feel that you could actually be open and honest with? That you could tell them the deepest secrets and have no fear that they're going to reject you? No fear that they're going to mock you, push you away? Community, relationship, sometimes its fragility is vividly displayed. You might remember in 1991, an American, African-American taxi driver by the name of Rodney King was savagely beaten by four white policemen in LA. When they went on trial in 1992, they were acquitted of the assault upon Rodney King. You might remember the riots that followed, the shattering of community. Over 7,000 buildings were torched. 53 people were killed. The fragility of community is vividly displayed in an appeal that Rodney King himself made. He said, please, can we get along here? We all can get along. I mean, we're, we're all stuck here for a while. Let's try and work it out. The desperate appeal of the victim. We've got to try and work it out. But I think you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, we want more than just a peaceful coexistence with those people around us. We want more than just live and let live, yes? We want to actually feel that we have connection. Now, the Bible uses a particular term for this. It talks about fellowship, okay? Fellowship is a, a deep term. We've reduced it, perhaps, to friendship, but it is much deeper than that. Fellowship is more than just relationship, but can I say, at its very least, it is relationship, that being known by others, being accepted by others, belonging, being loved by others. Is it a dream? How do we respond to Rodney King's appeal? Let's try and work it out. Where do we find the resources to put those things together that we can actually feel that we have relationships within this community but also beyond this community? Relationships that are open, relationships that are deep, relationships where you can say we are known, we are loved, we are accepted. Got four headings for you this morning. We're made for relationships, we're saved for relationship, there are barriers to relationship, and lastly, living in the light. You'll find some notes in your handout if you want them, uh, but let's start made for relationship. This is a brief recap, not so much what's in 1 John chapter 1, but the background that lies behind it. I want to take you from 1 John, almost at the end of the Bible, right back to the beginning and Genesis 2. You remember the opening chapter of Genesis, God creates, and at the end of each day of creation, do you remember what he says? He says, it was good. It was good. 
What he's really saying is, this meets my expectations, my planned purposes, perfectly. This is what I aimed to achieve, and this is what I have achieved, gets the big thumbs up. It's like when you stand back from a project, maybe you're whipping something, you know, doing the master chef thing in the kitchen, and you look at it, and you just go, it's good. It's what I wanted. It's what I planned for this to be. That is what God is doing at the end of each day of creation. It's good, it's good, it's good. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 18, and we have this. The Lord God said, it is not good, not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. What he's saying, not that this somehow is, you know, a flaw in his purpose, but what he's saying is his purpose here is not that humanity lives alone, that humanity is an isolated being. We were made for relationship. You might remember that Genesis speaks of humanity being created in the image of God. And there we have a clue of why we were made for relationship, why the man alone is not good. Because the Bible teaches us that God in and of himself is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three persons of the Trinity relate to one another. God in his essential nature is all about relationships. And as we are in the image of God, we are actually made to mirror that. We are made for relationships. And you see this as Eve is created. And you see Adam's response, the delight, the joy in another human being. Not just physical, not just marriage here, but that other, apart from himself, that knows him, that accepts him, that loves him. In Genesis 2, nakedness is more than just physical. It's relational, it's emotional, it's psychological. There are no barriers for relationship. There is no fear. There is no shame. We were made for relationship. But as I look out, there's no naked people here this morning. You might say, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that Cameron is not standing up there naked. Genesis 3 gets in the way. Can you imagine that? There's a quick aside. It just occurred to me that if Genesis 3 hadn't come in, we would all be naked in church, and, and, and we just wouldn't have an issue with that, would we? But Genesis 3 gets in the way. Genesis 3, with humanity's rejection of God as God, their attempt to redefine that relationship. Let us tell you, God, how it's going to work. You are not at the center. We are at the center. And we get these words, these horrible words. Where relationships, relationship between God and humanity and between humanity themselves where they were completely open and transparent. In Genesis 3, the Lord God calls to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. All of a sudden, 
relationship is derailed. Fear and shame come in and people are hiding. Not only hiding from God, as we will see, they hide from one another. But we need to recognise that we are made for relationship. I could quote Paul Simon, one of my favourite artists. You remember Simon and Garfunkel? I am a rock, I am an island. Absolute rubbish. You are not a rock, you are not an island. No person is meant to be alone. We are built to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to accept and to be accepted. And the story of Scripture, at one sense, is a very real movement from how do we get from the shame and fear that corrupts relationships in Genesis 3, how does that get reversed? How does God address that? And that brings us to our second point, that we are saved for relationship and brings us into 1 John chapter 1. You've got your Bible. John writes, now can I say, John is one of the more unusual biblical writers. Uh, He doesn't write in straight lines. Paul is very linear. John writes in circles. And so you might feel sometimes when you listen to what or read what he's saying, you kind of go, how? What? what? You've got to work at it. Work at it with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Does that make sense to you? You got that completely? It's interesting though, isn't it? He talks about the word of life. He talks about eternal life, but he's obviously not talking about an abstract concept. He's actually talking about a person. He's talking about a physical person that they saw, that they touched, that they listened to. They're talking about Jesus Christ. And he's talking about Jesus in this very particular way. This word is Jesus Christ. And he proclaims this word, he proclaims the eternal life, he proclaims the good news of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. He speaks of what God revealed through the person of his son. He speaks of the forgiveness of sins that is found through the cross. There in 1 verse 7, he speaks of the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all sin. 2 verse 2, that Jesus, this word of life, this one he describes as eternal life, is an atoning sacrifice for sin. He speaks of what Christians refer to as the good news or the gospel of Jesus. And one of the effects of this gospel, we've talked about forgiveness, we've talked about how sins are cleansed. One of the effects is the effect it has on relationship. There it is in verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. They proclaim Jesus so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father 
and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. What he is saying is through what God has done in Jesus Christ, the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship, the relationship between humanity and God has been restored and the relationship between us together has been restored. He's saying that as sin has been dealt with, the thing that brought shame and fear, as it has been dealt with in the cross by the penalty borne by Christ, what it does is it restores relationship. John records Jesus saying these words about eternal life. He says, this is eternal life. This is in John 17, verse 3. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He doesn't speak of eternal life like eternity in heaven. He speaks of eternal life as a relationship restored between us and God. It's like what happened in the garden in Genesis 3 when we said we'll go our own way. It's like the power cord has been pulled out and we are just winding down as life leaves us. But what has happened at the cross? It's like as sin has been dealt with, we have been reconnected, plugged back into the relationship with the Father that gives us life in ourselves Eternal life is found in that relationship. It's intensely personal. Sin has been wiped away. And what he is saying is that our fellowship has been restored with God. No fear and no shame. And with one another. So I'm sure all of you, if you are Christians, if you've put your faith in Christ, you have perfect relationships, don't you? Yes? No. Okay. You're just like me then. Okay. Paul Tripp, uh, one of my favourite authors. He has fantastic moustache, this guy. Look him up on the net. Uh, he says, we live in a network of terminally casual relationships, of shallow relationships, of stunted relationships. We live with the delusion that we know one another, but we really don't. We call our easygoing, self-protective and often theological platitudinous conversations fellowship. But seldom they reach the threshold of true fellowship. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, what has been done for you at the cross, dealing with sin and restoring fellowship, the objective fact is not subjectively realised. What God has done for you in the cross, and it's done, is not being worked out in our lives. And from your reaction just before, I think you agree. I think you agree. So what are the barriers to relationship? I want to give you two. I want to give you, firstly, I think we get sin wrong. And that creates a barrier for relationship. In 1 John... Many of the people that John was writing to were getting sin wrong in a way that perhaps we don't. You see, they had actually got, and if you read through, you'll see this, they were starting to get this kind of super spiritual 
perspective on things. They believed that as they'd come to Christ, God had lifted them up out of the physical world in a very real sense. Not that they were ghosts or they were walking, sort of ethereal people walking around, but what it meant was that the physical couldn't touch them. And so what they did with their bodies actually didn't matter. The life that they lived made no difference whatsoever. They could live in relationship with God and do whatever they wanted. Maybe we don't have that same issue. John says it like this. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with him but walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out of the truth. A little bit later on, 2 verse 9, he says, if anyone claims to be in the light but hates a brother and sister, is still in the darkness. You have these people who are claiming that they have this great relationship with God that is in no way impacted by the way that they live in this world. Maybe our issue, though, with sin isn't that we're super spiritual, isn't that we believe that sin doesn't touch us. Now, I want to warn you, for some of you, you have very sensitive consciences. And what I'm going to say, you're going to hear it really, really, really clearly because you are really, really, really good at condemning yourself. I'm not talking to you. (laughs) I'm talking to everyone else who thinks that I am talking to you, but not them. Okay, because for some of us, and I include myself in this, we downplay sin. We know the gospel. We know what Jesus did. We know that sin's penalty has been paid. Its power has been broken. But we discount the fact that the Bible tells us that sin remains. It's like an army that has been defeated but is fighting a guerrilla warfare until it is finally eradicated when Christ returns. Can I just say, most of us have no problem believing that sin remains in the lives of those around us, Uh, but mostly we don't actually believe it in ourselves. And we we might in our heads, but maybe not in our hearts. How do you know if that's you? How... How much confession play, how much does confession play a part in your prayer life? How much do you come to God with real grief in your heart that you fall short of the standards that He has set out in His word for you? How much do we feel the burden and long for the time? when sin is finally dealt with once for all? Or do we? We have lots of, prob- lots of thanksgiving and lots of requests, but where is confession? Where is the grief over sin? Because I think as we downplay sin, as we think it's not active or very active in our lives, it still works in us and it still makes us afraid. It still attaches our hopes to other things apart from God. It still seeks assurance apart from him. So I care deeply about what you think of me and so I will not tell you what is truly happening in my life. 
I will not let you under the surface because I don't want you to reject me. I want you to love me, so I'll just show you the nice bits or the less nasty bits anyway, if it's me you're talking about. We all do it, don't we? We self-censor. We have maybe a few car park miracles this morning, anyone? That you walked in and you brightened up. How are you? Oh, yeah, good, good. It's been, yeah, it's a good week, yeah, yeah. It's been a terrible week. It's been an absolutely horrible week. Oh, no, no, it's all great. We do this because the sin in our life that is being paid for by Christ but remains. It attaches my hope, your hope, to that affirmation we receive from others and so we do not dare. We are afraid. Afraid that if you truly knew me, you would reject me. You would see my shame and I don't want that. Sin, we get it wrong because we downplay it. We don't need to be afraid. Christ has paid for it, but we need to take it seriously. And John tells us that if we deny it, the truth is not in us. But I think also, as we get sin wrong, we get grace wrong. As we downplay sin, we also throw away the very thing that God has given us, the amazing grace. We all know we need grace for salvation. If you've come to Christ, you recognize that it is not by your strength. It's a free gift of God. But we miss it. We miss it as we leave it there just at the beginning of our Christian life. And we lose it as the power and the motive for living the Christian life. We know that the gospel brings salvation. The cross works that for us. But if we leave grace there, we have a two-dimensional vision of the cross. What I want to say is that the grace of God to us in the cross overshadows the entire Christian life. I've heard people talk about you know, miserable sinner Christianity. Have you, you heard that kind of phrase? You know, I'm, not, I'm a worm, I'm not worthy. No, we should be rejoicing. We need to know our sin, but we need to know that God's grace more than counters it. It gives us everything we need. Titus teaches us the grace of God has appeared and it teaches us. And what does it teach us here? It teaches us that the cross is the answer to our fear. Not only is sin paid for, but the fear, the very thing that terrifies us, that sin latches onto, has actually been dealt with in the cross. We fear shame. We fear that if the dirt of our sin is seen, we will be shamed. But if you go to the cross, you will see that Christ bore our shame. Christ himself stripped, exposed for all to see, no secrets on display, shamed. 
What did he achieve? Verse 7. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. We see that the shame that we fear being exposed has been made clean by the cross of Christ. And nothing can touch that. Nothing can touch that. We fear rejection. That if you truly knew me, if I truly knew you, we couldn't accept each other. We would turn away. But Christ at the cross was rejected for you. By man and by God. Turned away. Cast out the anger of God against sin turned him away. But 1 John tells us that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And not just for ours, but for the sin of the whole world. What he's saying is not everyone is saved, but that Jesus' sacrifice is of such worth that if every person was saved, his sacrifice would be sufficient. That's what he's saying. And it is that one, that one who was turned away, that one who was rejected so that we might never be. Because it is on the basis of the cross that the Father welcomes us in. Brother, sister, grace is the power and the motive for the Christian life. How does it help us in relationships? To the extent to which we truly believe that Christ bore our shame, that Christ was rejected so that we might never be, we will be prepared to be brave, to open up, knowing that if you reject me, God never will. If you say, shameful, God says, pure, cleansed, atoned for. Brother, sister, how do we live in the line? I want to give you three things as I wrap up. Repentance. John teaches us. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, not that our confession earns sin, earns forgiveness, our confession demonstrates that we know who God is and how it is that we are saved. The pattern of the Christian life from beginning to end is repentance and faith, turning from sin and turning to God. And there is no need for fear. There's no fear, there is no sin that needs to be atoned for because it is done in the cross. And Jesus, 2 verse 1 tells us, is the, the advocate who speaks for us. Jesus speaks in our defense when we do sin and says, Father, my grace is sufficient, my blood paid for that. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so we can be real. We can walk in truth, as John tells us.
as we come to God acknowledging our sins. And I also don't need to pretend to you that I am perfect. I am far from perfect. I am deeply flawed. But I am more deeply loved and forgiven and accepted by the grace of God. Doesn't mean it's always easy. But we need to go back to the acceptance that is ours, to the forgiveness that is ours, and rest there. The one whose opinion matters has accepted us. Go to him, seek forgiveness. Secondly, humility. Because if I know I'm a forgiven sinner, and I know that every single day I live by the grace of God, how dare I look down on you? And how dare you look down on others? Because you, apart from the grace of God, would be under the wrath and condemnation of the Father, and rightly so. But as, our, as I am accepted, as you are accepted, it humbles us. It humbles us. As we see our need for grace, so we can extend grace to others. Our need for love, so we can love those, even those that we find unlovely. God's gracious patience with us overflows with patience for others. Humility and worship. We need our hearts, not just our brains, our thinking. We need our hearts, the entire center of our being, to love God, to rejoice in his grace, to see our sin and see the wonder of forgiveness and come to him in worship. We need our hearts to break. We need those pieces to melt. And God remake them. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. We need to drink deep at the well of grace. And as we do, as we do, our relationship restored that energizes us, our relationship with the Father that he has given so much to establish with us that is given to us through the cross, then empowers and overflows to relate to one another. We have everything we need to transform how we relate from the banal theological platitudinous, if you like those words, we can truly be open and honest with each other, knowing that we are called to accept as Christ has accepted us. Let's pray. Father, we do ask. We do ask that we would be truly humbled before you. We see how you made us. We see the way we were meant to be, Father, but we are so often, we are so often afraid. We are so often caught up with what others might say about us, what others might see in us, and we forget that you have said that we are loved children of yours. 
that we have been cleansed, washed clean, and there is now no condemnation, that you will never turn us away, you will never, you will never cast us off. Father, the stain of our sin is dealt with in the cross. Not just the sins past, but the sins present and the sins future. Paid for, once for all, by Christ. Father, help us. Help us to know that. Not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Help us deep down to turn from the sin that latches on to all those other things, other people's approval, shame, fear, and help us to see how in the cross you have answered them once and for all. Bring us back, though, again and again, that we might, we might know the grace that is ours in Christ even more fully. And in his name we pray. Amen.